welcome to the Hell Project podcast. This is where I share all of the results of the research and reading that I've done on the doctrine of hell over the last few years. Uh, I defend the view that uh, without Jesus, we are all dead. Uh, This is the view called conditionalism, and I believe there's better news in it than the traditional understanding of hell. And I try to defend that here. The audio quality may not be that high as it's taken off my YouTube channel and unfortunately some of the streams do have technical glitches but I hope that you stick with it and uh, do let me know what you think, share, uh, get involved through Twitter or even comment on my YouTube channel. I look forward to hearing back from you. Enjoy the show. Yo, there's one already. I didn't even put my own sound off. Hello, there we go. There's an official hello. Um... So hopefully this will run a little bit smoother. The slow mode on the live chat has been turned off, so hopefully there'll be a few questions from people. Chris Date, nice to see you. And uh, we'll be engaging with Dr. Peoples in a moment Um, and basically seeing a little bit about the future of conditional immortality and uh, his experience of conditional immortality. over time, as he's had about probably the best part of a decade head start on my own interaction with this debate. Um, So really, without much further ado, we'll just go straight into the conversation. And if I think of anything else that needs to be said about the channel, I'll do it at the end of the stream, because I'm pretty sure everyone wants to see uh, Glenn rather than myself. So I will line line that up. Um, Here we go. So hi, Glenn, you're now live hello how you doing all very well thank you so much for joining me it's uh, a pleasure to uh, meet you online and um I've, I've read your stuff i'm still reading your stuff as i said i've got about 10 years to catch up on um <laughs> and uh, really appreciate all that you've done in this area so just before we uh went live uh you're telling me a little bit about what you are currently doing um if you'd be happy to if you could share a little bit about uh your story so what's kind of what took you into discussing hell to such an extent that you're discussing it with uh robert peterson and a few others and um yeah maybe even take it a little bit further back what's your story how did you become a christian let's start there right um well, I was raised in the Catholic Church uh, until my early teens in, in a small town in New Zealand. And contrary to what some evangelicals might think, that actually gave me a, a pretty solid background in, in knowing, I guess, the basic, you know, God was there, uh, knowing about Jesus, knowing something about the Bible and so on. I don't know if I, if I want to point to a specific moment when I became a Christian. Like a lot of Christians, it was it was in my early teens that I started taking more of an active interest in my faith. And so a lot of people would say, well, that's when I became a Christian. Well, if, you know, okay, so be it if, if that's how you describe things. But that's when I left the Catholic Church and got baptized. Some would say re-baptized. And, uh, yep. <laughs> and, and I started thinking more about, about Scripture and about theology. And... Like a lot of people as well, when I left home, I guess I was about 18, that's when I, I I tried out a few different churches and 
you know, all the way from from very Pentecostal to Reformed, and only really settled in my current church environment, Anglican, um, about five years ago now. Now, at a professional level, so you know what I what I'm doing now, I don't do anything related to my studies in in theology or philosophy. I graduated back in 2008 with a PhD. But for a few reasons, partly where I am in the world, partly because it's not really a field with many opportunities, and also because I hold some of the wrong opinions on hmm. things, right. um, it just turned out that a career in academia uh, wasn't to be, or at least not in theology or philosophy. Um, and so, you know, I still I still do things. I still write occasionally and speak occasionally for various projects, like Rethinking Hell, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm actually a senior data analyst for a government department. I can't tell okay. you which one. I, or I have to yep. kill you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So you have to get over to the UK first. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'll shake your hand in person first. <laughs> but um, as I was saying before we went live, uh, just recently I've I've gone back to study. Uh, you know, part-time and by distance, but I'm doing a psychology degree. So I'm looking for a change in, in professional directions. Also, there are you know, obvious pastoral applications of that as well, which are, are quite interesting to me. Mm. Yeah, as, uh, as I was saying before, Wuhan, as an elder in my church, I've got a few connections with um, both the psychology side of things, but also just a few mates going through mental health stuff as i think everyone can probably mm. relate to at the moment yeah. um and so just having having more christian presence in that environment would be extremely helpful um to be able to counsel to be able to um yeah have have some wisdom in how to handle mental health as well as uh, trying to figure out that balance of what's spiritual what's physical i guess as well um yeah i mean having a discussion with that I haven't ruled out some sort of ordained ministry at some point. And as I was saying, this would be quite relevant there as well. But it's that's for me at the moment, that's a complicated one just because there are some things going on in the Anglican world. So that's that that's still there, but it's on hold while I look at um, what that's probably going to turn out like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting you've gone from Catholicism all the way into to Anglicanism. Um I haven't really shared too much about my own personal background, but it's a bit of a mix. Um, I used I used to be your side of the world growing up. I grew up in Papua New Guinea. Um, and so uh, being a missionary kid, I had all sorts of different church experience. Um, and uh, yeah, my, my parents' home church is Anglican. So I, I know a decent amount about the Anglican church. I do keep an eye on it, but now I'm part of... Um, one of those non-denominational denominations. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so, hence the language of elder, which is um, we're a team who lead the church um, rather than a priest. And I, yeah. I don't have any formal qualifications, so this this channel is very much a um, a project, and very much I lean heavily on on those who have studied you know, a little bit more Greek and Hebrew than. Uh, me and and so I've yeah I read a lot and this topic seems to have caught my attention more so than anything else so I'm still trying to work out why that is the case I think it's just been such a paradigm shift for me to to realize that half the the language that we talk about and one of your things in rethinking how 
I noted was um, you presented four different sections on uh, conditional immortality. One of them was just the language of destruction. And you've, yeah. you've got all these words, perish, uh, burnt up, destruction, and the, the list goes on and on. Be like chaff in the wind, smoke, vapor. It's, it's all there mm. within the Bible that there will be an end to the wicked. And yet these two verses in Revelation that mention torment forever and ever have to filter through to the rest of the language. And so yeah. I, I think that was one of the, the major shifts for, for me was um, when I was really on the, when I was on the fence, it took me a couple of years, I'd say, to, to really make the, the move, as I'd recommend most people take a, a decent amount of time to shift on a major doctrine. But I think that for me was a major thing when I was preaching was I can just I can now preach the language of scripture and even though I was questioning the doctrine itself I could preach the language of scripture and no one was any the wiser <laughs> yeah yeah except it. now you can do it without mental reservation you don't have to pause yeah. and say now when I say destroyed what I actually mean is yeah yeah, yeah very yeah. much so and it's one of I'm just interested in how you felt about the change. For for me, I mean, there have only been a couple of moments like this in my faith. But although although it isn't a matter of being born again, it feels like it is. Like it feels like you're suddenly you're you. It feels like you have been born again. Like you're now seeing everything in a new way. You look at the scripture and you think, I didn't know anything before. How did I miss this? Yeah, 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 yeah. And and also there's a simplicity to it. For me, I, I I could definitely describe it like that, that there's a sort of born-again moment of this, at least in terms of heaven as well. Heaven was an outcome of outworking. Of, yeah, that too, yeah. Um, out of this, that the, the good news of the gospel is one day evil will be no more. And by no more, we don't mean a realm created for this evil to be no more. It's yeah, yeah. Actual, <laughs> there will be no more evil. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning. And so... Over the last couple of years, the the passages like Isaiah 25, Revelation 21, um, where it just emphasizes the beauty of a new creation, um, as well as 1 Corinthians 15. Um, just suddenly, this is good news. And so when I talk about um, the gospel to someone who uh, doesn't know anything about the gospel, I can literally use language they understand with life and death yeah. rather than and death yeah. being the end of life than mm. its ongoing existence and they and they get it and and so for me it simplifies things and and so yeah I've, yeah born again is a great way of uh rather than salvation born again but just a, a yeah, clarifying yeah. of um of doctrine and uh, refreshing understanding of the gospel um that was that was needed uh, as well um, so I, I lined up a few questions uh, for us to chat through. I think we've kind of probably skipped around already, which <laughs> is absolutely fine. Um, so when did you? So rethinking hell was it started around 2011? Was it? Were you there right at the start of the ministry? I was there. I mean, I yeah, I wasn't one of the people who said, "Hey, let's start this thing." Um, but when uh, I, I was originally contacted by Peter Grice, who's you know, one of the founding fathers. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, I was in the original team and still am. I mean, I, d I don't really have that much involvement, but every now and then I pop up. Right. Okay. So 
you're kind of called on. Like, I mean, if there's one sort of expertise that you you have within the hell discussion, what what would yeah. you generally be called upon to to give? Well, it's the thing. I I'm not even one hundred percent sure. That I suppose I should measure that by by the way in which people ask me questions. Because long before Rethinking Hell came along, in fact, this is why I, I, I guess I was called on to do it, is often I'll get asked questions about hell just because people know that it's a subject of interest of mine. And right. the types of questions that I get asked about are, are usually just pretty straightforward biblical exegesis. So I suppose that's that's what I do. And, and thinking about the articles I write, that's... Well, no. I mean, half the time that's what I do. The other time, it's responding to bad philosophical arguments. You know, like um, someone will make an argument about the infinite holiness of God requiring eternal torment in hell. So yep. I'll respond to that. Um, I guess it's a reflection of my academic interest. You know, my master's in dis- with distinction was in theology with a heavy emphasis on biblical interpretation. And okay. my PhD was in Oh, you're just frozen. Hopefully that will come back in a moment. So while uh, we've just lost Greg moment, uh, Glenn, I've just called him Greg, that's embarrassing. Uh, we've <laughs> lost Glenn momentarily. Hopefully that will reconnect shortly. Uh, while he's reconnecting, hopefully the um, we can have a little chat on the, the chat and... Uh, See what's going on. Uh oh. So uh, I'm going to reconnect. All right, I've just got a message from from Glenn that he's restarting. Everything crashed. He'll start again in a sec. So, what questions do you have while he's he's sorting out his internet connection? Uh oh. Hello. Hopefully we're back. We're still we're, we're still alive, so no problem at all. Um, right, I'll go back to uh, both of us chatting. I think I think that's. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. No worries. I th- I think we're there. Uh, let yeah, me my- just check. Hopefully, let's go back to stream health. Uh, right, okay, so it looks like it's coming back live. Sorry about that, everyone. We had uh, technical issues, happens. I, yeah, my, my computer is aging somewhat. 
<laughs> no worries. I thought it was my side of things, and just uh, well, so uh, so much for the the smooth stream. No worries. Yes. Yeah, so, so those are the things I do. I, I do mostly biblical exegesis, but every now and then someone will say, "Hey, here's a philosophy argument. Take it down." <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's that's good to know. Uh, my my philosophy understanding is again a bit more of a hobby and what I've read rather than anything I've trained in so my, my background is computer science engineering so um, I then was a teacher for about eight years in secondary schools um, and then every, everything theology wise is uh, through being a, a kid in church and reading a lot <laughs> mm. so um, that's, that's kind of where my, my background comes from um, so we've got um, I've got a few more questions to go through, and then and then there are a couple questions on here. Um, I've just noticed Chris Date has a question for you as well, so we'll ask that in a second. Um, so I'll, I'm kind of just going to pick your brain if that's all right. I've, I find that I overload people that I talk to about hell at the moment, um, trying to trim down the discussion to some really key points to make someone go away and think about it rather than um going here's the evidence for conditional immortality which is pretty much genesis to revelation yeah it's a lot of data <laughs> um what, what would your sort of elevator pitch be to someone who's very clearly traditionist but open to a conversation Open to the conversation is the important part <laughs> because, you know, obviously what, what, what I would say depends on who I'm talking to. Um, there are some Christians uh, and, you know, very sincere Christians who, for a variety of reasons, are just, are just so hostile to thinking about this issue differently from how they currently do that I wouldn't even bother. Uh, you know, they literally invent new heresies so that if you believe eternal torment is false, well, that's heresy. It's never been heresy before, but now it is. Yep. Uh, so you've got to be wise about how you use your time. But, okay, so suppose that I'm talking with with a, a brother or sister who is is really willing to discuss the issue in good faith, but I don't want to give them a lecture. So I think I, think I would sum it up something like this. And there's a reason why I would do it this way, and I'll explain in a moment. So I would say, we are mortal. We will die, really, literally, physically, no tricky language. We will die. Um, the Bible connects this state of mortality and this fate of death with our sin. And without redemption, that would be our lot. You know, to dust we would return, and that would be the end of us. But God's love is such that he gave us his son, Jesus, who became one of us. And even though he had never sinned, he died for us so that death wouldn't be our end. God raised him to life, and if we believe in him, if we are connected to God through faith in Christ, then we won't finally perish. Uh, but like him, we will be raised immortal and will have eternal life. And they won't even realize that you're talking about conditional immortality, but that's it. you know. And if you, if you put it like that, and here's why I did – as a message framed in terms of what God gives us through the gospel, then the other Christian will probably be sitting there nodding their head saying, yeah, yeah, of course. What else would you believe? Um, and that's when you point out that you've actually just filled in all the gaps. There's no space or rationale 
in that worldview for the eternal torments of, of hell. And perishing just is dying forever and not having eternal life. And you can add more details if you like, depending on how much time you have. Yes, of course, we you know, Christians believe that Christ will return. There will be a resurrection of the lost and the saved so that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and everyone will know that Jesus is who he says he is. But ultimately, that's the message. You don't have to perish. You can have eternal life, but there's no other place to go to for eternity. You have life or you won't. Mm. And, and that's that's the positive summary. You know, that's the positive message that is conditional immortality. Now, if you like, and this is what I would do, and this is what I have done, you can add a bit of a sting in the tail. So you've, you've just finished that conversation and you're both leaving the room. And then at the last minute, you can turn back and say, oh, Bob, one more thing as though it's a minor point, but actually it's a really important point to make them think about. You say, if the biblical writers had wanted to express the idea that the lost will one day come to an end and their lives will be over forever, what do you think they might have said? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you might suggest die, you might suggest perish, you might suggest be destroyed, be blotted out, be burned up like weeds, having an end in destruction and so on. But the funny thing is, the Bible says all of those things, mm -hmm. um, and fairly often, actually, quite a lot. So what sort of expression would you need to find in the Bible before you would say, Wait a minute. <laughs> that doesn't sound like eternal torment. That sounds like a final end of the lost. What would it take, Bob? Think about it and get back to me. And I've always found every time that I'm talking with someone who I think has an open mind and is open to talking about it, um, at the very least, they've, they've been able to say, yeah, that's actually quite a good question. Uh, and, and if you can get people to the edge of the cliff, well, that's a start. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, th I think for, for me, when I um, I was starting to interact with it, it was more inadvertent. <laughs> there was no, it was, it was a good mate of mine who I saw your the the Rethinking Hell book on his book bookshelf. This one, um, and uh, I said, "Oh, are you uh, turning into a heretic on me?" And um, <laughs> the standard the standard response to someone who knows all about hell, and. Um, his his response was very much just John three sixteen. He's like, well, Phil, tell me what you think perish means, and uh, from from there it sort of tr started trickling into well, let's see what rethinking hell group and and see what those um, how they deal with the weight that is the traditional view of hell, and mm. um, and it was just sort of an inadvertent shift of actually these arguments of perish. There'll be no more of the. They'll be burnt up. All started making more sense, and no one in in my entire in my memory, I can't remember a single person referencing Gehenna when talking about hell up until my engagement in this debate. Yeah. Um, no one talking about Sheol, Hades. Uh, no one talking about um, even corpses in Isaiah 66. Um, none of those things taught and they were very much looked over and um and, and so now I, I can't find i can't not see conditionalism mm. um but all, all that's really really helpful and i think when we're doing evangelism i, I find just lang language is now so easy and it's just about life and death and it's very much i, I think i would probably use very similar language to what you've just given as an example 
Um, so, yeah, I, I find it so encouraging to, to know that it is that straightforward and I don't have to redefine everything. Yeah, um, very much so. So you've you engaged in, uh, you're part of the Rethinking Hell, been in, involved in exegesis. Did you see conditionalism, uh, whereabouts in your journey from Catholicism to Anglicanism, where where did the hell redefining come in? Yeah, I mean, for me, that was it was fairly early. I mean, I um, I was in my mid to late teens, probably seventeen, eighteen, and looking back, that sounds that sounds pretty young. But I mean, bear in mind, I was someone who was really interested in theology and quite enthusiastic about it, uh, more so than than I guess the more adult people at the the local Baptist church that I was going to. Um, I've got a fly buzzing around me. It's it's summer here. (laughs) Um, And um, so I was going along to a youth group, um, a great youth group with a a youth group leader who was very enthusiastic about getting us to to engage with Scripture and to, to do a weekly Bible study. And he was a conditionalist. And like a lot of conditionalists in churches that don't teach conditionalism, uh, eventually he couldn't keep his mouth shut. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> yeah. that's how it happened. He, he. Um, I, I don't know how the conversation, how the subject came up in conversation, but he let slip about what he believed. And I thought, no, that's ridiculous. You can't believe that. You know, it, it was specifically about hell. And I said, no, everyone knows that that's not what the Bible teaches. You know, everyone knows that. And... Um, he said, well, if everyone knows that, why don't you show me where Scripture teaches that? <laughs> ah, and, you know, I, I it was turning pages through all my favorite verses. I was so confident that I would see uh, and have this mountain of evidence that I could appeal to. And I was, I was quite dismayed quite quickly to realize I had nothing. Uh, well, not quite true. I hung my hat entirely on on the vision in the book of Revelation. But um, when I realized that that's what I was doing, I thought, gosh, I th- I thought I had so much more than this. <laughs> um, yeah. And he, he, you know, I didn't argue with him much about it. You know, he, um, that, well, now, no, that, that probably is actually a good way to make headway is through conversation. But what he did was he lent me a book, uh, um, a book that I look back on and still think was, it was a really good one, actually, uh, by Sidney Hatch called Daring to Differ, uh, Adventures in Conditional Immortality. And it was written in a very conversational style. It was kind of described the author's own journey and his conversations about it. And I got to the end of the book and thought that was really quite persuasive. Um, uh, and, and that was it. I would have been probably 18, but I never looked back. Right, right. Uh, I, I think... That, that's quite interesting. On is a book for me, a book for you. Uh, there's two recommendations right there for those watching. Um, so, would you recommend that to someone now? What was your go-to book? If, if um, I haven't, one? I haven't seen the book for years. The truth is, I mean, most people will say, oh, "I read this book, and it was it was great." And you know, I'm reading this one now. Or, or, you know, and every, everyone at some point says, "I've read um, Edward Fudge's The Fire That Consumes." Confession. I've never read it. Every now and then I've seen bits of it and I've thought, yeah, that looks quite good. That looks like a very 
you know, decent treatment of the issue, but I haven't read it. Uh, I mean, I knew Edward. I was, I was fortunate to know him. Yeah. Um, well, you even dressed no. like him in one of your talks, didn't you? I saw that on one of the Rethinking Health. <laughs> I wore a bow tie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was wearing funny clothes in those days. <laughs> oh, right. was that just your own your own fashion? Was it? I thought that was, yeah, uh... yeah, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a parody. <laughs> but um. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I don't know what book I would recommend. I mean, yeah, I guess the one that I read was a good one. But mm. the truth is, most of my engagement with the issue has just consisted of uh, reading the scripture and engaging in conversation with others who share this view, and especially with those who don't. I, When it comes to reading books and articles, most of those that I've read uh, weren't by conditionalists. They were by people hostile to this view, just so that I could see, okay, so show me what you got, show me why I shouldn't believe what I do. And I think that really helped because it showed me the weakness of the case for the traditional position. I thought, wow, okay, so I'm not missing out on much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've, I've heard that as well. I just finished reading The Four Views of Hell um, just to see if, if I was missing anything. And, and I thought that was probably one of the weaker, if not weakest, argument. I have no idea who Danny Burke is. Um, but his treatment of the arguments for by John Stackhouse, his treatment of um, just comes across as we've got this answer. Why would you want anything else? And it just doesn't really deal with anything that the conditional immortality case makes. Um, mm. And to the point of reading consciousness into uh, corpses in Isaiah 66, uh, it was it's bizarre. It's just really um, when in every other area, every biblical scholar would say, come on, there's clearly no consciousness or whatever, whatever it is. They would they'd say that's really poor exegesis and you're reading into the text. But for some reason, when looking at the doctrine of hell, suddenly reading into the text is absolutely fine. We just read Revelation into every text we have and, and therefore that's OK. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 like you, the, what sealed the deal for me was those arguments that you, you read and you just go, I don't see that in Scripture. I see that as you've read C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce into Scripture or um, that seems to come up quite a lot. And um, so, yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really interesting. I'll probably say this, yeah, agree, read around, read all the other arguments. Um, and so if we kind of... That's that's great to hear your story, and I think there's quite a lot of similarities to my own in in some ways. But the where I was really wanting to take this conversation was more about how you've seen the conversation change. Has it changed in the decade? Is it about fourteen years since you started your blog? I was trying to figure out how long you've been in this. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Um, yeah, it's going on 14. I think I started doing this in 2016. So, yes, at some point this year, it'll be 14 years. Right. Goodness me. Yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to make you feel like you've been... <laughs> yeah, you know. no, it, it really flies, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, so what, here's the thing. When I started blogging, I, I, didn't, I didn't think that, you know, I would be blogging about any particular pet issues like like the doctrine of hell or, or understandings of human nature, both of which loom large in, in the whole area of conditional immortality. 
it just it's just that people really took an issue took an interest in the fact that I had views on those things because they seemed topical to a lot of people. So you know that that's where I'll go. Um, but where where I'm just trying to think where in my blogging and writing career did that really pick up? To this day, one of the most popular articles that I've ever written was where I just decided that I'd really had enough. And I wrote um, I wrote an open letter to my traditionalist friends and said, look, um, here are some issues that I have with the way that you're doing things. And I really think you need to take stock of, of how bad things are when it comes to the way that you handle scripture on this particular issue. Um, and, and nothing's really changed. I, 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 well, yeah, nothing's really changed when it comes to those evangelicals who defend the traditional doctrine of eternal torment. Uh, things have changed in the church generally on the subject. I, I'll come to that in a moment. But I don't really see much improvement in the traditional handling of Scripture. Uh, you know, people continue to... Well, in my view, blunt the language of destruction, and they'll search for its widest possible metaphorical range of meaning so that they can then pick something else every time the scripture uses that language. And I'm like, well, come on. You know, if it never has its primary sense in scripture, doesn't that ring any alarm bells? So you, every time those words are used, you have to say now, literally it would mean this, but it doesn't mean it literally here. Well, mm. never? Mm. Come on. I mean, that's... Um, and, you know, I know it to some people who are just approaching the issue for the first time, this sounds unkind and, and even a little bit dire. But honestly, the way that many evangelicals argue from Scripture for eternal torment and, and against conditional immortality, I think it's their intellectual low point. Because these are not stupid people. You know, they're not dummies. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't yeah. want to be heard saying that. It's just that. The quality of biblical interpretation here really is appalling, and and I'm not, I'm not hostile to conservative evangelicalism. That's that's where I put myself now. Mm. Uh, so yeah, it's just that uh, methodologically, I, I think that's really where the bottom falls out. But there, re- I mean, but yeah, there have been some changes um, in the wider Christian scene, even in the wider evangelical scene in the last eight years. So in the first place, I think arguments for eternal torment are are shifting. Now, there are those who still argue primarily from Scripture, and they still have the same problems, I think. Mm. But, I mean, basically, the argument from Scripture for eternal torment has failed. That, that's my assessment. It really has failed. And that's an avenue that many evangelicals seem to realize that they're not going to make much headway in. And the reason I say that is that what I see is that so many proponents of eternal torment are now focusing primarily on what look like philosophical or intuitive arguments. Now, I don't think it's good philosophy, but but that's the style of argument that I think is more common now. And so you, you see traditionalists putting their eggs in the basket of divine holiness or divine worth. You know, God is of infinite value or worth or holiness. Mm -hmm. And so if you sin against him, well, that's an infinite sin. So you should get an infinite punishment. 
or, or something like that. Now, yeah. yeah, I don't think much of the argument. I've commented mm. on it in, in some depth elsewhere. Uh, in the first place, I think it abuses the mathematical concept of infinity. infinity. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. God is perfectly holy and perfectly good, but not numerically infinite in his goodness. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. And if you sin against or reject the God who is perfect holiness, perfect being, perfect goodness, then, then you're going to lose all those things mm. because you've cut yourself off from them. So you lose all life, goodness, and being. I have no, no issue with that. Um, and then you'll get those, again, I think, appealing to some sort of philosophical or, or, or in, intuitive argument that death is worse than eternal torment. So God wouldn't do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've seen that. Which, yeah. is, which is kind of a turnaround. Yeah. You know, some evangelicals are still saying that annihilationism doesn't take hell seriously enough. Mm-hmm. And then you've got this new crowd of evangelicals saying that, no, actually, it's too severe. Yeah. <laughs> you know, God yeah. would never destroy something made yeah. in his image. You'll, you'll, you'll hear that sometimes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I guess to some, if you catch them on the right day, it sounds like a nice sentiment. But it's, it's not what Scripture teaches. You know, you can lose the right to be the image of God, to be his representative in creation. You can lose that. Um, now, I, I agree, of course, that final destruction is 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 really serious. You know, I, it, I think it's the most serious thing imaginable. Um, I think it's, you know, at, at an existential level, I find it terrifying. Um, and I, yeah. I really have no time for people who say that it's no big deal and actually unbelievers don't care about death. That's insane. It's false. Absolutely. Every psychological thing that talks about fear is generally, it's up there with number one or two, is, is generally annihilation. Most of our fears, in some way, can be traced back to the reality of our mortality. Yeah. Um, and Scripture says that too. It says that through, in, in the book of Hebrews, it says that through the gospel, God has delivered us from the fear of death mm-hmm. because it's yeah. such a universal, paralyzing thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah there absolutely. have been shifts in the way that, that that Christians talk about this, not necessarily for the better. Mm. Um, but then on the other hand, so that's that's kind of where mm. broadly conservative Christian thought is at. But then on the other hand, and this trajectory has been there for a while, um, universalism is more popular now than it has been for a long time, um, and and that's partly re- partly related to the trajectory that has taken some Christians to the doctrine of conditional immortality. You see, there are two, there are two, well, this may be oversimplifying, but there are two types of people who hold to conditional immortality. In my experience, most of them are very conservative evangelicals who have arrived at this view through the study of the scriptures. And that's, I, I like to think that's at least most of them. But then there are people who um, simply are averse to the concept of divine wrath and punishment and retribution and desert. They don't like thinking about God that way. And that's what I would call a fairly... Well, in some ways, a fairly liberal trajectory where you want to get away from the God who judges and punishes um, and 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 to some you know, conditional immortality seems like a step away from that notion. I don't really see that it is because you can you can hold to conditional immortality. Well, I, 
it seems to me that thinking about conditional immortality is neither more nor less about wrath and desert than than the traditional view of hell. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. You could you could think of it in terms of desert, or you can think of it not in terms of desert, or you can think of it in terms of self exclusion or something like that. But in my experience, anyway, there are people who do make emotional appeals. Um, in favor of traditional, uh, in favor of conditional immortality, and people who do that, I think, could well end up simply being universalists, mm. uh, because if your idea is to get away from harshness and towards something that you perceive as more loving and 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 good and kind, then then you're not anchored. Mm. I, you know, I, you're not, yeah, I completely uh, agree. I, I think, um, yeah, death isn't a pleasant experience in any sense and never never is biblically speaking and we've also got all this language of destruction that I mean, being burnt up is never a pleasant experience uh out of darkness weeping gnashing of teeth if you're going to start making it a pleasant experience or trying to soften the experience of those who are uh outside of god's good grace then you've got you have got a problem in your hands and it was, it was interesting just to go back a little bit on what you were saying in the shift i just clocked that you're using the argument about god wouldn't destroy his image um I'm, i've seen that loads recently it seems to be coming up more and more but both sides universalists and eternal conscious torment uh, proponents are using that as an argument um and conditional immortality is kind of right in the middle so I find that really fascinating that a lot of the arguments um, that ACT use are actually utilized by universalists, but just flipped or tweaked yeah, a little bit. Quite early on um, in my academic life, you know, when I was still an undergraduate, it dawned on me that, that you know, sometimes, as, I guess it's kind of a guilt by association thing. Some people who believe in eternal torment might like to talk about universalism and annihilationism as though they're somehow both cop-outs or both soft mm. options yeah uh, and what i what i did is i developed this this triangle to show that actually all three views have at least something in common uh, universalists and annihilationists agree that one day there will be no more sin or evil um, traditionalists and universalists agree that everyone lives forever mm. And that's what and that's what you were talking about there. They would say God would never destroy. Um, so you just have to say, okay, so which points of the triangle are biblical? Yeah. Well, um, eternal life isn't for everyone, and God will destroy all evil. <laughs> I think I think those are the biblical points. Yeah. 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 Uh, and it's interesting. And again, in I'll just plug this as well, just because Chris Day is the most active in the the chat at the moment. Hi Chris, this this book is excellent, and uh, just a note on your your part of it is you break it down to the four aspects that we kind of covered already: the immortality, uh, world without evil. So immortality is conditional on Christ alone, and and again that makes most sense of the language of one Timothy, where it's only God is immortal. The language of one Corinthians fifteen, which is uh, the resurrected immortal body. The and it. it the, the logic and philosophy, even just the aspect of us being mortal now to put on immortality. If we're already immortal, what are we putting on other than a, a special body, I suppose? Um, so I think that was interesting. That was your first anchor point was immortality. The world without evil, for me personally, is one of the strongest arguments 
for conditional immortality. The fact that there will be no more sin, no more death, no more uh, weeping, mourning, because there won't be a realm kept in some other place. <laughs> I still can't get my head mm. around that. Um, and then atonement's a big one, and we haven't really talked much about atonement, but um, maybe, maybe we can do that in a moment. But the so do you? Do you I've, I've seen a little bit on the Rethinking Hell group. There's been there was one question given to a guy who's been doing his his live stream there, uh, JD Martin, who who's also on YouTube. I don't know if he's in this video at the moment. Um, he was asked that how how do you deal with the fact that ECT is no longer part of the conversation? Universalism is now um, the other party to the argument do you do you see that to be the case do you think universalism is becoming the bigger dog to definitely without without any doubt at all um it's certainly become a lot more prominent uh, in the just in the last decade it's become hugely um popular with well certainly with people who you might think of as progressive evangelicals so they're not quite willing to become you know people who deny the resurrection but uh mm. they can't abide this this very conservative way of looking at God, um, you know, and I've I've read you know, books like Thomas Talbot's. Uh, yeah, I've the, read that one. Uh, uh, I think his book is actually called The Evangelical Universalist, isn't it? That's uh, um, that's Robin Parry's, um, which I've got for ah, Christmas just to see. Was, uh, Stephen Talbot's was The Inescapable Love of God. Thomas Talbot. Yeah. yeah Thomas. I don't know who Stephen. That's Talbot. right. The Inescapable. I'm doing, you, uh, doing really well. I'm, names. I've called you Greg. Called you. I, misspelt your name I'm, I'm really good at it I get though. the t yeah I, I get the titles of those books confused but I've read the one by well I've read lots of parts of the ones by Talbot yeah. and and I've discussed it briefly with him online and I, I tend to find that it's pure philosophy you know I mean they'll, they'll tell you that they're exegeting scripture and they do mention the Bible sometimes um, and uh, look, I'm not saying there are no evangelical, uh, no universalist works that that are more uh, biblically oriented, but I find it so grounded in. And when I say philosophy, I guess I just mean sitting back and thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, I found that about Talbot's book as well. It's very yeah. much around the argument of free will. How can free will not be? Um, Oh yeah, there was a lot of idea of, of very Calvinistic thought behind it as well. From what I thought, that, that God's sovereignty and our free will into playing. I I was on audiobook, so I lost the train of thought a little bit. Um, but I I would agree with that. That it seemed very philosophical and um, pre presumed certain aspects of God's character without a scriptural basis before diving into um, the argument. Um, yeah, so I mean, my experience in in having an, an online debate with him that kind of fizzed out largely to my due to my own frustration was, I presented some scriptural arguments and said, look, these are some reasons why I think conditional immortality is is true, and his response was basically, look, um, there's a lot of lot of information there. How about we just talk eternally about my understanding of God's love? Yeah. And that's what it felt like. It's like, no, no, let's just talk about what I think love requires and let's talk about nothing else. And I'm like, man, you, you're just never going to get – I mean, if you, if that's how you think about the issue, you know, I've got a concept of love. I know what I would do if I was being loving. Mm -hmm. um, never mind all of the biblical data 
which can get awfully dry and and conservative. Let's just think <laughs> about this. Let's just think love about thing. love. Yeah. Uh, honestly, and people yeah. are going to be sitting here saying, "Oh, that's a straw man." It's not a straw man when you look at how how universalists in practice in the real world treat the issue. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've just uh, Chris Dates asked, uh, "Why are you lying and to admit that Ronnie came up with the triangle?" <laughs> <laughs> this is the thing. Um, yeah, in, in the um, oh, was it? Did we publish the triangle in the book at all? But certainly the, the triangle is referenced in the uh, at the website. And Ronnie, yeah, Ronnie, Ronnie Demler um, says, oh, "I came up with that." Yeah. I came up with. I don't deny that we came up with it independently, but I did it first. <laughs> Have we got to like carbon date the paper that it was drawn on or something? <laughs> yeah. okay. Debate that one once and for all. Um, in, ter- in terms of God's love, I, I see that as a very much a, a big argument for loads of other things within the sort of so cultural apologetic at the moment. What, of course, of course, yeah. If you if you start with something like. Uh, I know what God's love means. I know what it amounts to, and that's how I'm going to interpret everything I find in Scripture or in or in arguments. Well, that's how you get to gay marriage, you know. Mm. Well, yeah, a loving God would never tell two people that they can't, whatever. You can you yeah. can stick whatever you like at the end of that sentence. Yeah, yeah, yeah and and you do see that throughout. And what I find fascinating, I mean, one of the reasons I am firmly in the conditionalist camp is the biblical data throughout is uh, destruction and then there's those two complex verses at the end with revelation that we have to kind of that are always thrown at us as this is what you have to filter the rest of the bible through but Mm. when it comes to god is love well that's how many times is that phrase used in biblical scripture like throughout it's used in once it's used in one passage (laughs) it's used in one passage yeah Uh, and And it does you know At a, at a literal level, it doesn't make sense. God can't be a quality. Mm. You know, yeah. <laughs> love, is, love is, well, it can be thought of as a quality or it can be thought of as something you do. Mm-hmm. And not, it doesn't make sense to say that literally God is either of those two things. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and so we've got, but, got to wrestle with that, but, what that is. But it's, uh, to be fair, to be fair, there are, I think, a couple of passages which if you knew nothing else, which is always a bad <laughs> a bad way to go, but if you knew nothing else, could be taken as support for universalism. And those are the passages where, like early on in the Ephesians is, is an example, where uh, Scripture says that God has this plan to sum up all things in creation under one head, Christ. You know, where the idea is that there will be a point in the future where everything in creation will be in perfect submission to God and Christ. Um, now, that may be a problem. Uh, the universalist can use that as a weapon against someone who believes in eternal torment because they can say, see, there's no evil in creation, but it's a pretty blunt tool against conditionalism because we believe that. Mm. But we just look at all the other passages in Scripture that talk about how we get to that state where all evil is eliminated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, I think, again, with the weight of Scripture, I generally point to, if we're going to look at God's attributes, there is far more biblical data to prioritize. If we're going to prioritize one attribute over the other, which, again, I think is a bad way to argue, 
necessarily, but if we're going to promote one over the other, let's start off with His Holiness, because at least that's that's a starting point that generally is what is cried out before His throne, um, and, and referenced several several more times than God is love. But it's it's quite interesting how that is utilised across the board to say, well, if God is love, this is how I'm going to then argue. And um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see how as a, as conditionalists we can engage with that because I like you I would say a lot of the argument now seems to be philosophical and my starting point is scripture and I'm finding that uh, and the authority of scripture scripture is the authority over me if I'm going to stand at the front of church it's not based on my feelings and my emotions it's what the authority of scripture and um, if someone comes up to me and says well this is God is love and this is what I feel about love and this is how we should look at um, who God is and it goes off from scripture how, how can we engage when we're, our starting point our view of scripture is so different um, I just have you thought that through at all that's just something off the cuff I haven't really been yeah how do you, I mean it's yeah so it's it's kind of to ask the question how do you engage with someone who who isn't <laughs> who isn't that into scripture? <laughs> I mean, yeah. that sounds that sounds a bit mean, but but that's kind of what it amounts to. If how do you engage with someone who doesn't have the same point of appeal? You know, who isn't going to appeal to the same thing that you are? Um, and I guess the only thing to say is, look, um, I'm an evangelical Christian. I I believe what scripture teaches is what God wants us to know about this, mm-hmm. and here is what I think scripture teaches. And if someone says. You know, if, if someone pushes the the line of divine love and say, "Well, how do you know what? How do you know what God's love is like?" Hmm. And well, if yeah. they start saying, and, it, and if they start saying things like, "Well, I I feel it," or you know, "Well, I'm a parent, and yeah. I know," well, yeah, 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 yeah. The thing to do always is to say, "Well, it's interesting that that's why you feel the way that you do," but. I'm a Christian, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. and Christians have this thing about our faith not being something that we come up with, but something that is revealed to us. Yeah, yeah, amen. That's a, that's a great uh, place to to kind of pause there. So th- there's one final question before we go to the to the um, the chat, where there's a few questions waiting for us. Um, it it's very much. I don't want to be doing something that's already been done. I don't necessarily want to be arguing something from scratch when there's already something there. Um, and so very, my videos are very much trying to point to resources, trying to point to people that have argued already. Though I have in my head, I will engage with things like Revelation, the big, the big verses thrown at conditionalism, and I will have my take on those verses um, mm. at some point. But what is your recommendation for someone who who's now at the, the early side of, um, well, I don't know if this will run a decade. Who knows? I'm, I've got other things keeping me busy uh, theologically. So this is just kind of my, my pet project at, at the moment. But what would you recommend to someone engaging in this discussion, how to further the, uh, I, I, I'll be blunt, the, the promotion of this view um, without having to restart what you guys have already done yeah yeah so i mean so you know i don't write much about it these days but if i do i don't sit down and say here is the case for conditional immortality because you know that's it's been done a million times yeah. um basically 
the way that I have proceeded for the last few years is just to listen and to yeah, actually allow those who are defending – because as far as I'm concerned, the score is conditionalists a billion, traditionalists pretty much zero. <laughs> and so there, the, the, the onus is absolutely on those who defend eternal torment to scrape together some semblance of, of, of response, some semblance of, of defense for their view. And some of them are brave enough to do that. And so that's what I listen for. Mm. You know, I, I wait for even you know, big names like William Lane Craig, who occasionally has spoken in defense of it, or, or John Piper, or you know, apologetics groups like Stand to Reason. Uh, wait for them to say something, because when they do, there is ample room for responding to it to say, look, yet again, <laughs> there's this argument which just has no foundation. And just to you know, continue to point out that the emperor has no clothes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's that's great, and, and something that I have have started doing a little bit with uh, my response videos. I have to say that is the the least time consuming thing to do, <laughs> and probably is probably the best, the more efficient way of doing things. Um, preparing an essay while reading all these different books takes a lot longer, and then to video it takes me a lot longer than just doing a live stream response to to some of these videos. So, yeah, that is something that that is on the cards. Uh, but also trying to do that in a way that isn't hounding people and isn't um, is gracious and is respectful and and honouring them. Uh, well, also, and I, I think in your letter you said in your letter to traditionists, I think it's a really good point is that there are certain levels of there are certain Christians who should know better. They've studied mm. hard. They've um, they call people to account on other areas of exegesis and doctrine. But for some reason, when it comes to hell, they slip up and just let eisegesis rule. And, um, and so I think that's, that's something that I'll try and do it here in this channel. It's very much just kind of call into question exegesis when, when and where I see it. Um, so I just want to thank you for your time. We're really close to an hour here, and I realize there's a few, few questions um, that are in here. One that caught my eye... Uh, so I'm I'm quite fortunate in the UK. I'm part of a church that is very much happy with me following where Scripture leads. As I say, I'm, st I'm on the leadership team, um, and I'm actually allowed to do. I will be doing a, a seminar in at the beginning of February for my church that presents the three views of hell, while also showing that where I sit. Uh, so I'm I'm not under threat of losing my role. I know that in the states there are quite a few people that are. What what is the picture of conditionalism in New Zealand? New Zealand Christians aren't particularly interested in theology. That's a massive generalization, but it's <laughs> it's probably think, true. Yeah. And and I, I imagine that's true of of pew sitters in America and the UK as well. Uh, we are fairly fairly complacent lot. Um, yeah, there aren't many churches, I would think, even even pretty mainstream, conservative-ish, evangelical ones that actually preach about hell. Uh, it's it would be seen as, I guess, not very welcoming, perhaps a bit dark. Um, when it comes to being open to conditional immortality, I would imagine that pastors in general, and this is my experience, 
don't know the subject because who does? You know, who actually focuses on this? Well, almost no one. Yeah. Weirdos like me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, every time that I've brought it up, at one time it was a fairly conservative evangelical church, and they said, well, you know, that's not the view of this church. But I was obviously fairly capable of defending it, and they said, you're welcome to remain. They even let me preach sometimes as long as I didn't go there. So right. it wasn't much yeah. of an issue. Um, I'm an Anglican now, um, and it is actually the view of lots of Anglicans. There was a, a report issued back in the mid-'90s where where the Doctrine Commission of the Church of England advocated it as the truth. So that was quite <laughs> that was awesome. quite a it was, good. It's a good thing to know. But, you know, uh, one of the – I mean, there are lots of bad things about Anglicanism, such as its rampant liberalism in some quarters. But one of the good things about it is that, that, that you can generally carve out a space for intellectually respectable evangelicalism where you've got quite a long leash. And, you know, you can explore things within reason. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's – yeah, pretty much my experience as well, at least in the UK. Although, same, same with – People just don't know the subject uh, at all, yeah. and so many assumptions, especially around eternal soul, um, and so you find yourself in a bit of a sort of a rabbit hole of other conversation around the soul and the makeup of the body before you even touch the subject of judgment and, and God's judgment. Um, so I'll, I'll see if I can find a, a couple other questions. There's a question from. Uh, Chris Date, who pays you a compliment in the chat as well. He says you are one of the most uh, instrumental people in his being convinced of conditionalism. So uh, that says says a lot. Oh, I've, I can't hear you. Oh, I'm, I'm still here. Can you hear me now? Testing, hopefully. Any luck? Nothing's changed here. My mic is still going. Let me just check my Skype call. Uh, in the chat, let me know if you can hear me. Um, and just seeing there's looks like uh, we have lost. Oh, Right, so you can still hear me. My video is probably going to freeze. Just give me a second while I start up again. Here we go. Hello. Right, hello again. Right. Yeah, sorry, I lost sound. It's, right. it's, a, it's a bug that I have sometimes. <laughs> no problem at all. I can't see your video, but we'll just we'll just crack on. We can hear you. Um, and uh, right, so Chris State's given you a question here. It says, what areas of exegesis theology? philosophy and history uh, do you think still need to be worked on by conditionalists so um, what are the weakest areas of conditionalism I suppose could be asked uh, I mean I think that we have a pretty good argument when it comes to the atonement 
but I still think there is work to be done. Um, and when I say we have a good argument when it comes to the atonement, I think we have a great argument against the doctrine of eternal torment because I don't think those who believe in eternal torment can make sense of the need for the death of Christ. Um, and I think you see this. So the way that the way Sorry, that your, can your webcam is not on. If you are able to change that, but don't worry if you can't. We'll just yeah, I um, I don't know why that's not working. Okay, no worries. We'll just go with sound for the the rest of this. Just answering those questions. So we've got a good good argument for atonement. Yeah. So the way that our argument from the atonement has proceeded is that yeah, we believe that in in the death of Christ, we see the consequences of sin, and it's death, it's not eternal torment. So he died in our place so that we wouldn't have to and we would live forever. Um, the The traditional account of hell has had to sort of respond to this. And in doing so, they've said things like, well, you know, Christ suffered spiritual separation from God on the cross and and various things of that nature. And I think that was a theological catastrophe because it failed to explain why Jesus needed to physically die. And so I think in the atonement, there is a potent argument for conditional immortality. But making sense of the mechanics of the atonement is, I mean, it's, it's difficult full stop. But I think that's an area where we could expand our thinking, uh, where we could develop further. Now, for instance, you get, you get questions like, Okay, so why didn't Jesus stay dead? Because, you know, we believe that the punishment for sin is not just dying temporarily, but dying forever. Um, and so I think that there is, you know, and I've heard various attempts that have made various attempts to, to answer that, but I don't know that there's a really good, succinct statement of that answer anywhere. And I think it would be helpful if someone wrote one. <laughs> and it may, it, it may mean moving away from a very simple concept of substitution, for example. Um, now, I think we can say that without much risk, because whatever the answer, it's not going to help the doctrine of eternal torment. It's not going to undercut the idea of, of annihilation or, or conditional immortality, because uh, I, I, I can't see how it would help traditionalists to explain why the physical death of Jesus really deals with sin. But, it, but it's an area where I don't think there's been a lot of good work done. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think in terms of atonement, it is a very strong argument as well. Um, and if that's an area of weakness, then it's something that um, I don't think would require too much to, to really clarify that area. But um, I think you've laid the mandate, mandate down to Chris Date there to get on it with... <laughs> um, <laughs> Although he's quite busy with uh, his his stuff, I think. Um, so, just looking through questions. Oh, we're back. Welcome again. Um, just looking through the questions. There's um, so just in terms of. I don't think it's a question necessarily, but a comment about uh, when scriptural data is undeterminative. So if it's a little bit vague. Mm. Um, and you have to do further non-exegetical work to come up with a theory. Um, just trying to see where the question is. Uh, so, where where do you go 
if there needs to be like a almost philosophical backing to because there's limited data do you do you i can't think of a time where that might be the case i, I guess there would need to be an example of that um so i would say if scripture isn't determinative in that uh, if scripture does not provide a clear answer by itself yeah i mean in, in principle philosophical reasoning and I, i'm never really sure what what someone might mean by that term but the idea is because the idea of the sufficiency of scripture and of sola scriptura for example is it's not that everything has to be affirmed explicitly in Scripture. It's whatever is taught in Scripture or whatever is a good and necessary inference from Scripture. But, you know, the, the strength of your inference is only ever going to be as good as as the quality of your biblical evidence. Even with a concept like the Trinity, um, people... You know, people might sometimes say, "Well, that's not a biblical concept. That's more of a of a, of a theoretical or philosophical construct." Mm. I, you know, obviously, I can't ask the people who were around for the Council of Nicaea or who who had a hand in the Athanasian Creed, but I am willing to bet lots of money <laughs> that mm. the people who wrote that, if you said to them, "Is that something that you can derive from Scripture?" their answer would be, "Yes. It just takes yeah. a while." Because yep. the biblical statements are so scattered. Uh, but in as a general rule, where scripture isn't determinative, you shouldn't be dogmatic. Yeah. yeah <laughs> you know, that's you, that, that, that just means that probably should not make its way into your essential uh, list of, of teachings. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes secondary. And, uh, and Chris makes can you a hear me? point. Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. I can. Um, just, just Chris. Why can't I hear you? <laughs> You've got an interesting computer. I think everyone can hear me. Just, I'm making the point. If you look back on the video, that. Um, Hello. Chris, it, yeah, I, I, I don't know what's going on with the the video. Um, Chris's point. Just to clarify, that question was from uh, Little Miss Muffin Top. Um, great name, by the way. If you can still hear me, I should still be streaming um, sound. But Chris's point is that when it comes to hell conditionism, this isn't exactly uh, non-determinative. Um, so I'm going to try call Glenn just once more to finish the stream. But if it doesn't work, hopefully you can hear me still. Um, I'm going to give it a couple minutes. If there's any last questions, feel free to um, send them in now. doesn't look like I'm getting Glenn back. He might have restarted his computer. Um, so just looking through some questions now. Uh, Paul S, I've just seen your question. How would you answer the objection that conditionism doesn't properly answer the question of PSA either because Jesus wasn't punished with death for eternity, was resurrected instead? Uh, interesting. I'll see if we can get an answer. Hi, should we try one more time? And 
and yeah, then I'm, we'll call it quits. I'm, uh, I'm not sure where I'm not sure where you lost me there. My, my no. um my sound glitched out at some point. Yeah, no worries. I, I heard you fine. I could I could hear you. Uh, you just couldn't hear me. So ah. all all I did was um, just clarify, as Chris State said on the chat, that um, when it comes to scripture around this debate about conditionalism, it's fairly clear. Um, and so I think there's one more question, and I'm, just because we're having technical issues, we'll stop it there. But the, the question is quite a big one, so we'll see where we take it. Um, the question says, there's an obje- objection that conditionalism doesn't properly answer the question of uh, penal substitutionary atonement either because Jesus wasn't punished with death for eternity but was resurrected instead um, are you able to yep um, so minimally and this is what I was saying earlier it's certainly an area where I think um, further explanation would be and exploration and writing would be beneficial but minimally we can say that conditionalism makes sense of the death of Christ whereas the doctrine of eternal torment does not Um, so I think if we start there I think if we accept that which I think we should then we're basically all on the conditionalist camp saying okay so why wasn't it forever well the resurrection was necessary in order for eternal life to be possible Um, So in Jesus, you don't simply have the fate of the lost. You have the fate of the saved. Uh, You know, he he didn't... um, He didn't... He he is not what the lost will be. Because in Jesus, we see uh, what Scripture calls the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. So... And I think this is going to be true... This would be true from a, a traditionalist or a conditionalist point of view, except traditionalists can't account for his death. But whichever of those two options you embrace, you have to say not only that Jesus tasted death for everyone, and we have different understandings of what death means, I, I take it quite literally, but also that he overcame it. And so that in him... Uh, we can see what happens not simply to the lost, but to those who do not receive the final fate of death. So you could say to the traditionalist as well, uh, well, if Jesus was our substitute in damnation, then why doesn't he remain damned? Why why isn't he lost now? Well, it's because he isn't just our substitute in, 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 um, in, in the consequences of sin. He also represented us in overcoming death and receiving immortality. The answer will be somewhere along those lines. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, th- I think I, I would agree. There's two things I'd try and clarify first is what the definition of death is. I'm finding that's more and more where the disagreement is. Um, and I've, I tend to find I'm, I'm leaning towards, and I haven't, had very much response or feedback from either direction on this, I tend to define death as the last part of Genesis 3, which is to dust you will return, rather than the initial you're sentenced to die on the day you eat this fruit, the warning in Genesis 2, which is generally where traditionists seem to pick up the definition of death, is a spiritual death on the day that they ate the fruit, yeah, uh, rather than the death uh, that, that Christ has taken. Um, 
And then the, I guess the difference I see between Second Death and First Death is just one has Hades after it, the other has Hades no more, and you you have nowhere to go to, so you are into oblivion. You're that you're dead. You end. Um, so Christ took death in in all its forms because they mean the same thing throughout scripture I, d- I don't see the spiritual death versus physical death distinction um, in in that way so I, I don't know if that's uh, a strong way to do it but I would very much like you lean to the, the conditionist handles it better <laughs> let's then yeah. figure out what that looks like um, and, and discuss that um, so I'm not seeing many other any other questions really coming through um, but I don't want to risk the technology breaking down again um, but also we've also been talking for an hour and 20 minutes and so that's probably long enough for people to catch up on so I just want to thank you very much for your time and uh, look forward to seeing where this psychology degree takes you and um, seeing where your blog goes as well as your comments on Anglicanism uh, I've been kind of keeping track a little bit on your your last couple posts so um, thank you again for using your, your Saturday morning to talk to me and uh, maybe we'll do this again sometime let's do that yeah it's been a pleasure um, it's been a while since I've heard a good chat about hell <laughs> yeah I seem to be doing it too often the, the, the moment but um it's fine. I, I enjoy the discussion and the sort of rigorous debate that it does allow and, and getting stuck into scripture as well. So I really appreciate it. Um, there was a farewell from Chris Date on the chat as well. He says he's very grateful for your friendship and just passes that on to you. And there was someone else, uh, Ben Davidson, who's also part of the Rethinking Hell group, uh, says he appreciates your contributions to the discussion as well. So you very, very, feel very appreciated, please. And... Uh, <laughs> it's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, that's very nice to know. Yeah, I, I really see Chris as the one who carries the baton more these days than me. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, you've got your voice on all his rethinking how live. So. Uh, well, I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. No, thank you very much. Then I'll uh, wrap this conversation up, and um, I'll hopefully see you online soon. All right, Phil. It's a pleasure. Take care. Cheers. Take care. Wait. So thank you all very much for joining me. I think I've just shut down the Skype, which has shut down my uh, video. Uh, Hopefully you might still be able to hear me. If not, um, well, I'm going to have to say goodbye here. And uh, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. And we'll uh, talk to you soon. If you've got any other people that you'd like to see on the Help Project live stream, please do give me some ideas. Any other questions you'd like me to engage with, let me know. And uh, I will hopefully be doing a few more videos in the near future as well. So keep uh, an eye on the new videos. Uh, Subscribe if you haven't already. And hopefully see you around. Thank you so much. And I will shut down this stream. Thank you for listening. And I want to know what you think. Do get in touch. As I said at the beginning of this podcast do that through uh, Twitter or my YouTube channel but I also have the scripts and free resources and other studies that I'm continuing to engage with at uh, thehellproject.online thank you so much for listening 
If you'd like to support the channel and uh, the show in any way, please do go into the description of this episode and you can find a PayPal link. Otherwise, I do this all for free and I hope you found it helpful. God bless you. See you later.